praise to you, O Christ. Let's also turn over in our Bibles to our sermon text, which is going to be Acts chapter 24 this morning. Uh, we're making our way towards the end. Probably noticed that. Uh, a couple of chapters to go uh, here in Acts 24. Uh, we're in the last part of the story of that ancient church as it grew and spread from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth. And in chapters 21 to the end, chapter 28, uh, we're thinking about or focusing in upon the Apostle Paul as he went to Jerusalem and then he is going from Jerusalem and we'll see eventually he's going to go to Rome and spread the gospel there as well. So chapter 24, uh, we're jumping into the middle of this lengthy story. We read, after five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus. They laid before the governor, meaning Felix, their case against Paul. And when he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, Since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation in every way and everywhere, we accept this with all gratitude. But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. For we have found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. The Jews also joined in the charge, affirming that all these things were so. And when the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, Knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. You can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem, and they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. But this I confess to you, that according to the way, which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down in the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So we always take pains to have a clear conscience toward God, both God and man. Now, after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. But some Jews from Asia, they ought to be here before you and to make an accusation, should they have anything against me. Or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council, other than this one thing that I cried out while standing among them. It is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. But Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off, saying, When Lysias, the tribune, comes down, I will decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion that he, Paul, should be kept in custody, but have some liberty, and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. After some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus, Messiah Jesus, And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, Go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. At the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul. So he sent for him often and conversed with him. 
when two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus. And desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. And to all of these words, God's people say, Well, doesn't it seem like every time there's a high-profile legal case in our country, there are are threats of riots if things don't go a certain way for a certain group. In the face of what one group considers an an unjust verdict, more injustice is the result. Well, how are we as Christians who live in that kind of a world, how are we to respond to injustice generally? Of course, as you know, that's been a subject of great interest. Uh, Many, many books. You can listen to many podcasts and uh, go to many conferences about justice. What is justice? What does it mean for the Christian church to, uh, to administer justice and to be on the side of justice? But more particularly for our purpose this morning. Uh, How are we as Christians to respond to injustice done to us as believers? Uh, This is not merely an exercise in uh, in an idea of what justice is and isn't and how we should be on the side of it and advocate for it in a civil society. No, the Apostle Paul here is suffering as a Christian. Injustice is being done to him as a follower of Jesus Christ the righteous one. And so in chapter 24, his experience is one of suffering under injustice. And so we can learn from his life and from his example. And ultimately, of course, we, we find in him the pattern of our Lord Jesus Christ. First suffering, then glory. In this age, there's great suffering, there's tribulation, there are trials, tribulations. But in the age to come, there will be an age of righteousness, an age of peace in which our Lord Jesus Christ reigns forever and ever. And so we have in this chapter the third of five defenses. Paul makes this defense, or his apology, the Greek term is apologia, as I mentioned before, his apology, his legal defense. It's not making an apology as we understand it, to to say he's sorry or to make up an excuse. No, he's making here a defense of his faith and his actions. And this is the third of them. He's defended himself, first of all, back a couple of chapters, before a Jewish mob in the temple itself. He's defended himself against the Jewish Sanhedrin, which I've described or others have described as the Jewish Supreme Court. And now he defends himself against the Sanhedrin, but yet in the presence of Felix. He was the governor of the Roman province of Judea, uh, today Israel or Palestine as it's sometimes called. He was a Roman governor uh, of that Roman province of Judea and he ruled over that province from the year 52 through 60. So we're in that period of time, uh, historically speaking. And uh, Felix was known as being a very ruthless man and a very ruthless governor and quelling many, many Jewish uprisings. In fact, the Roman historian Tacitus, uh, who wrote about this period of time, he was a first century Roman historian, he said this about uh, Governor Felix, that he exercised the power of a king with the mind of a slave. He had the power of a king to do whatever he wanted to, but he did it with the mind of a slave, meaning he was ruthless. We pick up here in chapter 24. 
After the military tribune, as he's called, Claudius Lysias, remember he's the one who saved Paul from the Jewish mob. Ironically, it was the Roman Gentile unclean outsider, the unbeliever who saved the apostle, not his own fellow countrymen, but we're here and uh, the military tribune Claudius Lysias has found out about a plot against Paul's life. That's the very end of chapter 23 where we left off last Sunday. His response may seem somewhat extreme. Look at the end of chapter 23, verse 23, 23-23. He sent 200 soldiers, Roman, uh, Roman legionnaires, 70 horsemen, 200 spearmen. That's nearly half of the strength of his garrison that he had as uh, this tribune, this leader, this political military leader of Jerusalem. Uh, he, was, uh, he was basically, as I mentioned last Sunday, he was sort of like, uh, like the, ch- the chief of police for Jerusalem. And during the times of the Jewish festivals, his garrison would get larger. They would bring down uh, from the Roman province of Syria, they would bring down hundreds and hundreds, sometimes thousands of Roman soldiers uh, to quell uprisings and violence. And so he sends nearly 500 soldiers with Paul from Jerusalem to Caesarea. Uh, Paul was a Roman citizen, remember, and he had claimed to be a Roman citizen. And so Claudius, his, his, his actions might seem somewhat extreme here, but what would happen if Claudius, maybe with a few soldiers, or maybe himself, sent Paul from Jerusalem to Caesarea, and on the way, Paul was put to death by those zealots who had vowed in chapter 23, they had vowed that they would no longer live if Paul wasn't put to death. They had vowed to put him to death. That's how extreme this this, uh, group of zealots were. What what would happen, though, to Claudius Lysias, the tribune, if Paul died on his way to Caesarea? He would be killed. That was a Roman law. If you had a prisoner uh, and you were in charge of a prisoner, and if your prisoner died for any reason, it was immediate death for you, for your prisoner dying. So he goes to what might seem to us extreme lengths, But he goes to these lengths nonetheless, Uh, 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, 200 spearmen. Uh, So Paul was taken out of Jerusalem about 9 p.m. That's in verse 23 23 as well. About 9 p.m. at night, under the cover of darkness, he sends him. uh, He does does so with a letter from Claudius Lysias, the tribune, to Felix, the governor of Judea. And uh, they came about halfway to Caesarea, verse 31 says, to the city of Antipatris. The next day... About 70 of those horsemen keep going the rest of the way to Caesarea. That was the the capital city of the Roman province of Judea. You see that in verse 32 and uh, 33. Felix reads the letter. He finds out Paul's a Roman citizen from the province of Cilicia up in the north. uh, And he housed him in Herod's Praetorium. Uh, That's the barracks for Herod's soldiers until his accusers arrived. See that in verse 34. And verse 35. And then comes this, this trial, as it were, that we read. And I want you to see here how Paul faces nothing but one injustice after another. But he instructively responds in a very godly way. Notice, first of all, the first injustice that Paul faces in our text, verses 1 through 9, is false accusation. False accusation. And I should add, or I should note, that this is the, this is the first accusation In this trial, uh, we've seen before that he's already faced many, many accusations. He was in chapter 21. uh, He was wrongly 
accused in the temple court. We saw in chapter 21 as well that he was unjustly beaten by the mob. Uh, We've seen him tried before the Sanhedrin unjustly. That's chapter 23. Uh, We've seen him hit at the command of the high priest in an unjust way. Again, the high priest told him to be struck, and he was struck uh, in an ungodly way, chapter 23 said. We've seen in the end of chapter 23 that a plot was made against his life unjustly. And so he's faced one injustice after another, and then comes this trial with more injustice, facing false accusations. Now, that's important for us to pause and reflect upon as 21st century uh, Christians here in America. Uh, It's important for us to pause and reflect. First of all, to realize when we read the stories of the apostles in the early church and we read the ancient church histories, our, our men's group is studying the apostolic fathers and Ignatius of Antioch is traveling from Ignatius all the way to Rome and he's writing these letters and he's telling them that he himself is being persecuted and that they are to, to band together and to, 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 uh, to have obedience towards the bishop and towards their presbyters, their elders and the deacons so the church would be unified in the face of great opposition. It's important for us to read those sorts of stories because they remind us to, uh, and cause us to realize that, that we've had it really, really good in God's good providence. We haven't had to face this sort of opposition, persecution, injustice, accusation. So we can thank God for his good providence when we read these stories of his harsh providence. Secondly, it helps us realize as comfortable Christians, it hasn't always been this way. It hasn't always been this way. And, and, it, and it isn't this way elsewhere, even today. The church is meeting and has met on the other side of the, time, uh, of the timeline. It's, uh, the church is meeting in places of hostility that we cannot even fathom as Christians. We're, you know, we're with a tropical, what is it, a tropical storm warning? Is that what it is? Uh, you know, we, we, we may not be able to meet because the winds might be too high or, you know, it might rain too much or floods and so forth. But trust me, your fellow Christians in countries where they have to meet in caves or meet in hideouts or meet in small groups with no more than a couple just to not draw attention to themselves, they would love to be here today with you, hearing the, hearing the rain come down and, and the winds. And yeah, the surf's a little bit big and uh, our streets might flood for a day or so, but they would love to be here today with you. And thirdly, just as a point of reflection, it's uh, good for us to, to empathize with Christians throughout the world, to Christians who are suffering persecution. I mentioned in our men's group uh, this past, I think it was our men's group this past week, uh, the fastest growing uh, Christian church in the world in terms of you know, where it's located at, in which nation it's located at, uh, you, you probably would never guess where the fastest growing Christian church is in the world today. Do you know? It's a good guess. It's growing fast. But I mentioned in our men's group that the fastest growing Christian church is in the country of Iran today, the, in terms of just exponential growth. It's growing faster there under the repressive... Uh, government, the theocracy they've been under for some 50 years, it's growing faster there than anywhere else. Have empathy with your fellow brothers and sisters uh, who don't have it as good as you. So we come back to the story and uh, we see there verse 1 on behalf of the Sanhedrin that Jewish 
ruling council, their supreme court. It's five days later. The high priest, Ananias, uh, who commanded Paul to be struck in the face, he now comes down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus, verse 1. Now notice this character, Tertullus. The Sanhedrin spared no expense in retaining his services. He's called here a spokesman by the ESV translators, a spokesman. Literally, he is a rhetoros. He's a, he's a rhetorician. He is a public speaker. He's a trained speaker. We might say he's a sophist or a sophist he's, uh, or a lawyer. He is trained to persuade people. And in the first century and in many centuries before and after, uh, the, 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 the rhetorician was not just a source of great persuasion in legal courts, but you would also go to public shows of rhetorical ability. They didn't have TVs. They didn't have uh, huge sports like we do. They didn't have all the entertainment that we do. And so you would go and you'd listen to a rhetorician speak on a subject and perhaps a, have a mock trial or a mock debate. And you would be entertained by their speaking because they were so amazing in how they spoke. And so this rhetorician, this spokesman, Tertullus, was a trained spokesman who was, whose job was to persuade. And whether he believed the story or believed the evidence or believed the case or believed the cause, that was beyond the point. The point was that he was trained to persuade. And so the high priest himself and some of the elders of the Sanhedrin come down with this rhetorician to try to persuade. He would be like a media personality today, uh, like those who go on uh, the talking head shows or uh, on podcasts or in other forms of media, uh, and they're constantly trying to persuade of one position or another. Uh, and, I, and I mentioned this, uh, you know, there, there's a lot of buzz amongst, you know, media types, uh, even Christian media types today about so-called Christian nationalism. But I've yet to hear in all these discussions and all these debates and all these uh, 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 speeches or little bits on podcasts or shows, I've yet to hear anyone actually define the term. They speak in very persuasive ways. They speak in very interesting ways. They speak in very emotional ways. But I've yet to hear anyone define the term. And, and uh, the, the closest I can get to is basically a Christian nationalist is a Christian who believes that Jesus is Lord. That's basically what it sounds like to me. Um, that, might, that might not be the case, and uh, I'm sure there's some scholarly literature out there that tries to define Christian nationalism, but there are many people today whose job is to persuade the masses that you, Christian, are evil, and that you, Christian, are a problem, and that you, Christian, need to be repressed in order for society to progress. But we say Jesus Christ is Lord, amen? He's the king. It may not look like it, but he's king. And every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so this, this uh, rhetorician, this Tertullus, was brought down as well and no doubt paid a, a very handsome amount of money to persuade. And notice the first trick that, this, that, 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 that he uses. Roman rhetoricians uh, would give a certain way of speaking, a certain type of way, a certain feeling to their, to their speeches and and, and, and the first thing that you see there uh, is what the Roman rhetoricians called captatio benevolentiae, which means to capture the benevolence of your hearer, to capture the audience. We might say he's buttering up Felix here. He's, he's, he's speaking sweet nothings into his ear to get him on his side. He's trying to captivate his audience. 
since through you, Felix, we enjoy much peace. Really? Have you read the New Testament lately? Have you read the ancient histories of the Jewish people in the Roman province of Judea? Since through you we enjoy much peace, that's, uh, that's uh, a complete falsehood. And since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation in every way and everywhere, we accept us with all gratitude. What's the irony of that? Remember the Sanhedrin? Which party's been the Sanhedrin? Two great parties of Jews. Pharisees, Sadducees. What were the Pharisees all about? What were, the, what were they hoping for? In the New Testament, when Jesus comes and they speak of him as king, which party of the Sanhedrin is usually up in arms about him? It's the fact that they were expecting a political Messiah who was going to throw out the shackles of Roman tyranny, not a suffering servant. And so he's saying that, well, we accept all these reforms with, with all gratitude, almost excellent feelings. No, actually, it's the enemy of my enemy is my friend, that they are trying to get him on their side. They, they didn't accept the Roman over, uh, uh, tyranny and overlordship at all. No, but to get him on your side, you've got to say certain things, whether you believe it or not. But to detain you further, I beg you in your kindness, Hear us breathe. So he tries to capture the audience of the governor. His second trick is very emotive language, very emotional language, trying to inflame Felix's passions against Paul. For we have found this man a plague. Notice he says two things about him. First, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world. Now, if you've read the story of Acts with, with, with us together here, uh, you will remember who are the ones who stirred up the riots. Was it Paul? Was it the Christians in certain cities? Who are the ones who, who, are the one, uh, who, are the ones who stirred up the, the action, the drama, the fact that the Roman guards had to be brought down at times? It was those in the synagogues. A certain party of the Jews are the ones who stirred up riots among all the Jews throughout the world. And he's called here a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes, the followers of Jesus of Nazareth. He, secondly, even tried to profane the temple. And notice what he says, but we seized him. You know, we saved the temple from profanation. Did they really seize him? What did they do to him? They beat him. They didn't just seize him and, and try to cordon off the area. No, they beat him to a bloody pulp. So much so that, that, that Claudius Lysias, the tribune with a thousand soldiers, had to send the soldiers down to the temple to bring him out. That's how bad it got. So he tries to capture the, the, the good graces, the good benevolence of, of Felix. He tries to inflame his passions. This man's a plague. He stirs up riots. And the, the Roman governors in the east did not want riots because that would draw the attention of who? Caesar. There was the Pax Romana. There was the peace of the Roman Empire. And, 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 and riots had to be quelled to keep public peace. So he's trying to say to Felix, you know, this, this guy is going to cause problems for you. Get those soldiers ready. But we seized him. You know, we did you a favor. We protected you from bringing down Caesar's ire. His third trick was false witnesses. Verse 9. The Jews also joined in the charge 
affirming that all these things were so. No evidence, though, only accusations. So he was, again, the subject of injustice. False accusations, emotional tricks, uh, being spoken of in certain ways without any evidence, with false witnesses, and so forth. But then notice the second injustice is found in, we're going to skip ahead to verse 22 to the end, uh, 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 in action. In action. I want you to see there Felix's judgment. We're going to come back to what Paul says, but notice there as well, there's a second injustice here, which is inaction. Inaction. Paul's accusers have nothing. There's no, there's no evidence. There's nothing to see here. Paul actually defends himself. Yet we read that Felix defers action, verse 22 says, until Lysias, the tribune, the man who saved him, the man who sent 470 soldiers to protect him, we're going to wait until the tribune comes down. Why? Why? I mean, he's the governor. He can do what he wants. He can judge the case right now, right here and now. Let me be done with it. Look at verse 23. Felix wasn't harsh to Paul. He ordered that he should have some liberty and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. I've mentioned before that in, 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 in Roman society, or in the ancient world in general, uh, to be imprisoned, to be a captive, uh, to be uh, taken in chains, and to be held in, in captivity uh, wasn't a pleasant thing. There were no three square meals a day. There was no, uh, there was no one hour of uh, outside uh, exercise and so forth. You were in a cave. You were in a hollowed out wall, hole in a wall somewhere. You were in a toppling building. Uh, and the only food, the only water, the only blanket at night, the only anything you could get didn't come from the guards or the state. It came from your friends. And sometimes they would forbid your friends from bringing food and water to you to make you suffer even more. And so Felix here is doing him a nice favor by saying he's he, he's having some, he gives him some liberty. He's able to walk around and so forth to be free. But he's also uh, able to uh, receive friends to attend to his needs. Food, water, clothes. That's why you read about in Paul's letters when he, he, he tells Timothy, you know, tell such and such to bring my cloak. Why does Paul tell Timothy, you know, bring my cloak when you come here? It was cold. Don't forget the books, the parchments. Why? Because he wanted to do some writing and some reading. So he was allowed some amount of freedom uh, in his imprisonment. Now, obviously, Paul's a Roman citizen. That's going to come out even more so in these, in these defenses. But there's a more nefarious reason for Felix being lenient and inactive towards Paul's case. Felix wants, like all good Roman judges and governors, he wants some, he wants some cash. He wants a bribe. He wants a few gold or silver coins to pay him off to let him go on his way. And so he speaks to Felix, and then Felix was a Jewish wife, Drusilla. Uh, we read that uh, Felix had hoped, verse 26, that money would be given him by Paul. You want me to judge your case? You want a good outcome? Wink, wink, right? Just slip me a few and, and you'll be on your way. But notice this didn't happen just even once. Felix sent for him often, verse 26 says. And converse with him. So Paul is being sort of brought into Felix's good graces. And and no doubt Paul knew this. But uh, Felix was doing this not because of any interest in theology and religion. uh, Not because his wife was Jewish. uh, Not because he was trying to learn more about the way and so forth. No, he was doing this because he was trying to give Paul the subtle hint. And that he wasn't learning it. And he was trying to hint even stronger by bringing him back and back and back again. 
send me some, find those friends, get me some money, and you're out of here. He was a crooked judge. He was on the take, as we say. And just when, uh, just when we think that things couldn't get any worse, notice verse 27. How long was Paul there in Caesarea in general captivity, uh, speaking back and forth with Felix, who hoped for a bribe? How long was he there? Two years. Right? It took five days to get from Jerusalem to Antipatris to Caesarea by horseback or by walking or by uh, maybe in a, in, a, in, a, in a cart or something like that. Five days to get there, two years once he got there. Two years once he got there. Nowadays, whenever there's some kind of hint of injustice in our society, uh, we can get a hashtag trending real quick, can't we? To rectify it really, really fast. You know, we, we've got it so bad here, don't we? You know, we can hashtag it up and we can, we can probably get some donations and we can probably get out of the situation pretty quick if we wanted to. But we've got to, we've got to as Paul, learn some patience. Felix wasn't out for real justice and the world isn't either. Notice, designed to do the Jews a favor, verse 27 says, Felix left Paul in prison. So how did Paul defend himself? Let's go back to verse 10. So all these injustices. He's suffering as a believer. Don't forget that. He's suffering as a Christian, as a follower of Jesus, as Messiah. So how does he defend himself? And how should we learn from that and respond as well? Uh, should the Lord bring persecution upon us for our faith? We can learn from Paul's response in the face of this bald-faced injustice in a couple of ways. Uh, first of all, I want you to see here that Paul stuck to the truth in the face of false accusations. He stuck to the truth in the face of false accusations. Uh, he even says that he cheerfully, this is Luke writing, he cheerfully made his defense. He didn't, woe is me. He didn't say, I've got to get out of here. He cheerfully took the opportunity to make a defense of his Christian faith. And he defends himself against these false accusations of Tertullus. And he does so by sticking to the truth. Notice, going to what Tertullus said and seeing how Paul responds. Notice how Tertullus accused Paul of being one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world. Paul just gives straight up facts, doesn't he? You can verify it's not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem, and they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. The world is going to try to silence the Christian faith using every trick in the book. Paul sticks to the truth. We have to learn as believers to speak we have to learn the virtue, I might say, the virtue of speaking the truth in love rather than virtue signaling, to put it in our terms. To speak the truth in love. And he does that. But of course, as we know, that uh, when you're, in the, you're facing injustice and here uh, the injustice of being a Christian, facts get in the way of feelings. And the Sanhedrin's feelings were inflamed with passion against Paul. And so his facts don't, of course, Solve the problem. But he still spoke facts in the face of falsehood. 
Secondly, notice his defense here as he speaks the truth in love and in the face of false accusations. Tertullus accused Paul of being a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. Notice that, a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. What does it mean to be a, to be a sect? A cult, right? What, like, what does that mean? A cult, a sect. Unorthodox, okay, but like, what is the image of a sect? Like a little separated branch, right? There's like this big tree and there's, you know, there are nice, some nice branches out. There's this little twig with some, you know, ugly fruit that really isn't good for anything. It's dying, it's rotting, it's about to fall off. These Christians are a sect. They are a cult. They are a small little offshoot of the Jewish people that we want nothing to do with. We've kicked them out of our synagogues. We've driven them out of our cities. We've closed the doors to them at the temple. They, we want nothing to do with them. He's a ringleader of this little sect, this cult, and so forth. How does Paul respond to that? I worship, verse 14, I worship the God of our fathers. Who is the God of our fathers? The Lord, right? When we read the Old Testament, the Lord in all capital letters, sometimes translated by the old King Jimmy, Jehovah, or we would say today, Yahweh, the Lord, the God of the Israelites. I am who I am. We don't worship some sectarian deity. We don't worship this crucified man and make him out to be a God. We worship the God of our fathers. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is our God. The God who in the beginning made the heaven and the earth is our God. The God who brought the Israelites out of Egypt is our God. The God who spoke in harsh judgments like in Ezekiel 21 this morning. That God who is a God of justice and of mercy is our God. And he's promised to send a Savior, a Messiah, who is our Lord Jesus Christ. We worship this God. And then Paul also says there, verse 14, I believe not just, uh, not only do I worship the God of our fathers, I believe everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets. So what are Paul's scriptures? The Tanakh, right? The Old Testament. The law, the prophets, the writings. The whole Old Testament. For us in English, it's, uh, it's Genesis to Malachi. The Hebrew Bible, it's Genesis to Second Chronicles. But it's the whole Old Testament. It's the entire thing. They're all there. All 39 books of the Old Testament. I believe all that. And, and again, why is that so important that he says that, that I believe everything laid down in the law and the prophets? Which group of the, of the, which group of the Sanhedrin didn't accept the prophets? The Sadducees. The Sadducees had only the law, the first five books. The Pharisees had the whole Old Testament. And Paul, as a Pharisee, says, I accept the whole thing. Our God has spoken. Our God has revealed himself to us throughout the Old Testament, throughout our history. And then he says this, I have a hope in God, this God of our fathers, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. The Sadducees did not like Joshua to the end of the Bible, the Old Testament, because of all the miracles, all the supernatural, all the angels, all the stuff about resurrection of the dead, life everlasting. They did not believe in the supernatural. They did not believe in a life after death. And so they got rid of that all by simply cutting their Bible Slicing a little piece of it off, first five books. Paul says, I believe the whole thing. The whole thing. I worship the God of our fathers. I believe all the, the law and the prophets have said. I have a hope in this very same God who has revealed himself in that law and prophets of there being a resurrection of the dead, both of the just 
and the unjust. The world is going to accuse you and me, and we know this is already happening, of being extremists, right? Ringleaders of sex. You know, these extremists, these fundamentalists, these Bible bashers, these Bible thumpers, these Christians are the problem. I read this week, uh, interestingly, it's a very interesting uh, thing that happened. There was a, uh, and I don't know the, the, who the person is, but a Christian, apparently who at some point was a politician, but a Christian, uh, wrote this on Twitter, or X, as it's called today, X, right? Twitter. Here's what the person tweeted out. There is no hope for any of us. So think about whether you believe this or not. There is no hope for any of us outside of having faith in Jesus Christ alone. There is no hope for any of us as human beings outside of faith alone in Jesus Christ. Okay, I got one amen. I got two amens, right? Got a few more. We believe that, right? We believe that. Why do we believe that? Why do we believe that? What did Jesus say about himself? I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. What did the apostles say earlier in, in, in Acts? What did they tell when, when Peter and John in chapter uh, Acts 4, when they spoke one of their first sermons, what did they say about Jesus? There's no other name given under heaven whereby we must be saved. There is no hope for any of us outside of having faith in Jesus Christ alone. That's the gospel. That's what it means to be a Christian. That's what it means for us as Protestants to be Protestants. There's no hope for the world outside of faith in Jesus Christ alone. What made that so interesting is this. There is a, and I say this not, not out of any partisan spirit, as you know, I'm not a partisan person, but a Republican representative from, Iowa, uh, from Ohio by the name of Max Miller, uh, who is Jewish, apparently, I've come to find this out, said this in response. Again, this is a Republican who supposedly believes in the First Amendment and freedom of religion. Uh, this is why it's so ironic. Said this, quote, this is one of the most bigoted tweets I have ever seen. Delete it. That's, a, that's, a, that's the government suppressing religion, isn't it? That's what the First Amendment's all about. No establishment of religion. But here is this re- Republican congressperson that I would think most people in this room would think on the, is on, on the side of the angels because he's re- Republican. He's conservative. This is one of the most bigoted tweets I have ever seen. Delete it. There's no hope for the world outside of Jesus Christ. But that's now even on the right the side of supposed evangelical Christians, that now is scandalous in a government official calling upon private citizens to delete not just words on a screen, but to censor their faith in the public square. Now, it got even more interesting. You probably know of Representative Ilhan Omar, who is a Muslim, who is as progressive as they get, right? She's part of the squad, as they call it. She said this in response, and I found this very interesting. No, she said, in response to the representative from Ohio, the Republican. No, stating core beliefs or principles of your faith isn't bigoted. Stating core principles of your belief, of your faith, isn't 
bigoted, isn't bigoted. It's religious freedom. It's religious freedom. The world wants to silence and censor, and it's going to come from all kinds of parties and all kinds of places. We've seen in chapter 20 already that there's going to be persecution, not just from outside the church, the savage wolves coming from outside, but they're also inside. Even those we might even consider, you know, believers in the general culture. Persecution can happen from all places. And so Paul here defends himself by saying, no, I, I am speaking the truth uh, because I believe in the God of our fathers, the God of the Old Testament. He's a God that has spoken of resurrection of the just and the unjust. I believe all that he reveals. Tertullus then tries to say that he profaned the temple. We saw that in verse 6. And again, Paul responded with the, this fact. After several years of travel, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings, which the law required, of course. And they found me purified, verse 18, in the temple. So he was, he was doing the exact opposite of what he was being accused of. And so he simply asserted the fact in this reality. So speaking the truth, sticking to the truth in the face of false accusation. That's what Paul does here. And then he also does something else here in terms of uh, what we can learn in his response. Uh, Paul saw injustice as an opportunity to proclaim the gospel. Felix brings him in. They have a wonderful conversation about the way, the Christian faith, about the Lord as Messiah, about sin, about righteousness, and ju- about judgment. He sends him away. He brings him back. Paul just sees this as a chance to speak the words. Injustice is an opportunity to proclaim the gospel. Verse 21, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead. This is what he said back to the crowd, the mob, in chapter number 21 that I'm on trial before you this day. That's what he told the Sanhedrin as well. Now, without his being in prison, he never would have had the chance, humanly speaking, to witness to the Roman governor of Judea, Felix. Without him being in prison for two long years, and when Felix turns out and... uh, we're going to see Festus, Portius Festus, then takes over the reins. Without Paul being a recipient of injustice and being in prison for two years, he wouldn't have been able to preach the gospel to Festus either. And if it wasn't for any of this, he never would have gotten to Rome, humanly speaking, to preach the gospel. And as Paul even tells us, and I mentioned this before, in Paul's letters, he tells us that even some of Caesar's own oikos, his household, have come to faith because Paul was imprisoned and in chains. Injustice, false accusations, persecution for being a Christian, from whatever side and from wherever it comes, inside or outside, is an opportunity to preach, to proclaim, to testify, to stand up for the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so Paul learned patience, and so can we. Paul learns patience in the midst of injustice. The Paul who tells us in Romans chapter 5 that suffering produces what? Suffering produces patience or endurance. If we feel like we have been assaulted as Christians, we have been targeted as Christians, if we have been ostracized because we are Christians, is the first thing we do is run to Facebook or do we run to the face of the Lord? Do we run and say, woe is me? 
hashtag it up or do we go to the Lord? Know that God uses your struggles to further his plan of sanctification in your life. If, especially in this case, persecution happens. And in all of our sufferings, in all of Paul's sufferings, finally, in all of Paul's sufferings, as a believer, Paul was more and more conformed to the image of Jesus. He says that in his letters over and over again. Go read Philippians 1 and 2 this afternoon. In all of his sufferings as a believer, he was being conformed more and more to the image of our Lord Jesus Christ, who suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. And then he rose again. Suffering first, then glory. Remember, remember Acts 14, 22. It is through many tribulations that we must enter the kingdom of God. Through many tribulations. It is to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ, that he's conforming our minds to be like Jesus, our hearts to be like Jesus, our words to be like Jesus, to use our bodies to be more and more like Jesus. In times of suffering and persecution and trial and testing, the Lord uses it all as he did in the Apostle Paul's life. And the Lord is going to use it in our life too. Amen? Let's trust in him. And let's go to the Lord and ask him to prepare us for persecution and to respond with such truth and with such spirit-guided persuasion uh, and such patience uh, and with such uh, ability to accept suffering as the will of God to make us more like God so that the Lord would use us to bring the world to know Jesus too. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the word and for the teaching of it. And we ask now as we come to the table of the Lord that you would uh, assure our consciences, assure our hearts that we belong to Jesus. Uh, Lord, even uh, as the apostle said that uh, his body was given up even that, and even as uh, your church is given over as lambs for the slaughter, we know that it is all for the glory of your name and for the good of our soul. And Lord, ultimately, the blood of the martyrs is, is the seed of the church, and so it's for the good of the world, even. We don't quite get that and understand that and even grasp that, but we know it's true. And so we ask now, as we come to be assured of your grace to us, that you would equip us as well and fill us with your spirit even more to be more like Jesus amongst a hostile world, uh, an encroaching persecution. And so may we be like light that shines in very deep darkness, uh, to be savory as salt in a place, Lord, that needs to be preserved until the coming of the Lord. And so use us, Lord, as that preservative so that more and more would have time and chance to come to know Jesus Christ before that great and awesome day of judgment to come. And we ask it all in his name and all of God's people say Amen. Let's respond by singing that uh, inserted song, one of the inserted sheets in your bulletin. The title is the communion hymn. Let's stand up and sing.